You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. There were, if the last three hours of this show haven't demonstrated this sufficiently, a lot of complaints and questions about evolution after the 1859 publication of Origin of Species. Some were philosophical or theological or just plain logical, but the most obvious issue was physical. Where was the evidence? Where was the proof? Where were the fossils? Darwin, as we've said, didn't think this was a valid criticism of his theory. Only under extremely rare circumstances does a corpse become fossilized, and the odds of one of those rarely fossilized animals being discovered were even smaller. So what were the chances that of that slim sliver of a sliver, we would find proof of transmutation? An animal that appeared to be between two species, or genuses, or families, or orders. But for Darwin, the search for a missing link wasn't just a sliver of a sliver, it was a sliver of a sliver of an even smaller sliver. Because in his view, most pathways on the road of life were dead ends. Evolution was a discursive and wending process, where the vast majority of things got lost and died without playing a positive role. But very few people agreed with Darwin's assessment because very few people shared Darwin's hypothesis that the tree of life was random, undirected, and filled with broken branches. Most, in fact, didn't think it looked like a tree at all. Instead, they visualized the history of life as a chain, a neat and tidy linear progression where more advanced species replaced earlier, more primitive ones without much mess. Whether that happened through mutations, or some vital guiding force, or through the active hands of a deity, the expectation was for an orderly, clockwork planet. The dinosaurs had had their time, and then they became the reptiles, and the dinosaurs went away. Platypuses had given birth to lemurs, who had given birth to monkeys, who had given birth to apes, who had given birth to us. Coming from that angle, it was only natural to assume the exact opposite of Darwin, that most fossils found in the ground should represent evidence of evolution, because most things that had ever lived and died weren't broken branches, but links in the chain. So what about the holes? Where were the missing links? In spite of his prominent role in bolstering and supporting evolution and his nickname, Darwin's Bulldog, Thomas Henry Huxley was more of a chain guy than a tree guy. So to him, the lack of fossil evidence did seem like a problem. 
But he had an answer. Most of life's transmutations must have occurred in the very distant past, a period he described as non-geologic time, beyond the reach of paleontology. Then, in 1861, a German paleontologist named Christian Erich Hermann von Meyer found a feather. Or I should say, the impression of a feather, imprinted into a slab of limestone laid down in the mid-Jurassic period. He named the unknown animal it belonged to Archaeopteryx, or Old Wing. Later that year, an unknown Bavarian laborer stumbled across a much more impressive fossil in another chunk of limestone near Solnhofen. Not understanding the value of what he had, he bartered it away to Dr. Carl Haberlin in exchange for medical treatment. Haberlin then turned around and sold it to the London Natural History Museum for a small fortune, where it landed in the hands of Richard Owen. There's an alternative version of this series where we draw the arc of Richard Owen as a scientific prodigy who changed and expanded human understanding before transforming slowly into the curmudgeonly villain we've so far portrayed him as. But that is not how we're telling it now, because Archaeopteryx is yet another of Owen's most infamous screw-ups. He thought it was a bird. A weird bird, a different bird, and a bird from longer ago than anyone thought birds lived, but a bird nonetheless. Many agreed with Owen, while others offered up other suggestions. Some thought it could be an angel. The German paleontologist Andreas Wagner said it was a reptile, which he tried to rename Gryphosaurus. In his examination, he wrote, Darwin and his adherents will probably employ the new discovery as an exceedingly welcome occurrence for the justification of their strange views upon the transformations of animals. And indeed they did, for good reason, too. The Archaeopteryx had wings with feathers, backward knees, hollow bones, and a pointed beak. But it also had a long, bony tail. In its bird-like beak were sharp, pointy teeth, and at the end of its wings, it had claws. Owen's description played down the more reptilian aspects of the fossil, determined to conclude it was a bird. But Hugh Falconer, a Scottish paleontologist and friend to Darwin, got his own look at the fossil and wrote to his pal with great excitement. It is a much more astounding creature, he told Darwin, than has entered into the conception of the describer, i.e. Owen, who compares it with the raptors as a round-winged bird of flight. Had the Solhofen quarries been commissioned by August Command to turn out a strange being a la Darwin, it could not have executed the behest more handsomely than in the Archaeopteryx. Falconer was right. Archaeopteryx was so perfectly smack dab between a dinosaur and a bird that zoologist Christoph Geibel suggested it must have been a fake, a regular pterosaur with feathers superimposed on top of it through some sort of lithography. But it wasn't. In 1868, Huxley announced his quite reasonable belief that Archaeopteryx was both the descendant of dinosaurs and the ancestor of birds the missing link had been found. Or, uh, a missing link, one of many, which began to pop out of the woodwork after Archaeopteryx. Huxley gathered more early birds with some help from the American Othniel Charles Marsh. 
Marsh collected a whole bunch of equine fossils from which he was able to put together what looked like a complete sequence of small, multi-toed, almost deer-like undulates he called Eohippus through intermediary forms until, ta-da, the modern, large, single-toed horse arose. Huxley and Marsh's straight-line presentations of dinosaurs turning into birds and Eohippuses turning into horses were, to put it generously, incomplete and fallaciously built around the idea of orthogenesis, but they made convincing spectacles of the no longer debatable fact that species transmute. And the hits just kept coming. People looked back at the Zooglodon, a huge, long-necked aquatic mammal identified by Owen, and realized, Hey, that's a lot like an early whale. And look at that, it's got the remnants of legs. It was clear that evolution, some sort of evolution at least, was responsible for the bulk of species alive today. But there was one holdout, humans. Where were the ape man fossils suggested by Darwin and Huxley and Haeckel? Throughout the eclipse of Darwinism, they were nowhere to be found, and many people found this absence comforting. Perhaps birds and whales and horses had evolved, but that didn't mean that people did. Missing link, a term that once referred to any sort of transitional fossil, soon gained a more specific meaning, the direct ancestor of humanity, a link in the chain of our own history, which, many argued, was missing because it did not exist. And people had been looking. Before Darwin, many had gone searching for fossilized human remains in hopes of finding some of the sinners who had died in Noah's flood. More often than not, if they found something, it turned out either not to be human or not to be fossilized. In 1726, Johann Jacob Schützer unveiled a specimen he named Homo testis, or Man Witness of the Deluge, which Georges Cuvier showed to be, in actuality, the fossilized remains of a giant salamander. In 1805, British soldiers capturing Guadalupe from the French took possession of a stone block with a partial human skeleton protruding out from it. But whether it was a fossil or not was hard to say. The leading test of the era, and this is still used in the field today, for whether a bone was fossilized or not was, I think you're going to love this, to lick it. Not for taste. The idea was that fossils stick to the tongue more readily than bone, which is incredibly true, but hardly a reliable method. In 1814, Charles Koenig of the British Museum told the Royal Society that the Guadalupe specimen, unfortunately, was just a regular skeleton after all. When actual, ancient, fossilized hominid remains were discovered, they were generally ignored, overlooked, or misunderstood. In 1829, Philippe Charles Schmerling had discovered a skullcap, a mandible, and a juvenile tooth in a cave near the town of Aweers in Belgium. Eventually, and I mean eventually, these would be recognized as the remains of at least three Neanderthals. But until the 20th century, most everyone, except for Schmerling, assumed that they were good old-fashioned, newfangled homo sapiens. Even when the named Neanderthal was discovered in 1856, almost everyone other than the two professors who analyzed it, Hermann Schaffenhausen and August Karl Meyer, presumed it was but a primitive race of man, or else some sort of freak or deformity. 
As the Medical Times and Gazette concluded, a theory of rickets and idiocy would go some ways towards unraveling the mystery. This skull belonged to some poor idiotic hermit whose remains were found in the cave where he died. F. Mayer, an anatomist at Bonn University, theorized the Neanderthal was a Cossack cavalry rider who crossed the Rhine to fight Napoleon in 1814 and then deserted the cause, finding the cave and dying there. Huxley, deliciously, took apart Meyer's work. How had this dying Cossack climbed into the cave 60 feet above his horse-ridden plains? How had he buried himself in the rocks? When, and for that matter why, had he discarded his clothing? Even still, Huxley did not think the Neanderthal was an ancestor to humans. The cranium was too large, he said, roughly the size of modern Homo sapiens. Any intermediary steps towards human development, he figured, should have a brain somewhere between modern apes and modern people. In 1891, Eugene Dubois, an anatomist and paleoanthropologist, discovered a molar and a skullcap on the Indonesian island of Java, then part of the Dutch East Indies. He called it Pithecanthropus, after Ernst Haeckel's theoretical missing link. After all, according to Haeckel, Java was precisely where the missing link should have ended up after the lost continent of Lemuria sunk. Dubois published in 1894, arguing that his discovery was the missing link. The skullcap indicated a brain of intermediary size between a modern Homo sapien and a gibbon, and it was found smack dab exactly where Haeckel, Charles Lyell, and Alfred Russell Wallace had predicted it would be found. Darwin, on the other hand, presumed humanity had begun in Africa, but as usual, nobody listened to Darwin. When Dubois sent word back to Holland of his definitively missing link, the scientists of Leiden found it far less definitive. By that time, Dubois had in his possession the skullcap, two teeth, and a thigh bone. As his paper made its way across the world, scientists were excited about the find, but dubious of Dubois' interpretation. Whatever he had was very interesting, but not the missing link. How could they even be sure that all the pieces belonged to the same individual? Today, we know Dubois' Pithecanthropus as Java Man, the first fossilized example of Homo erectus ever found. But for biologists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was more like a Rorschach. Those like Dubois, who were predisposed to seeing it as evidence of human origins, did so. But those who did not, did not. And there were far more of the second group than the first. In the first decade of the 20th century, it must have seemed like Darwin was right, that the fossil record would never give up the goods on our family history. And then, on December 18, 1912, a meeting was held at the Geological Society of London. Perhaps the most sensational meeting ever held in the history of the whole prestigious order. Two men, one an amateur, the other an esteemed professional, announced the discovery of several fossilized skull fragments and a jawbone, which, taken together, indicated a new hominid species. The missing link was real. The missing link had been found. And, most amazingly, the missing link was English.
This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Did you really need three hours of priming on the history of evolutionary theory to appreciate this episode? Probably not. What am I saying? Definitely not. But it's too late now. That knowledge is with you. And unless you're willing to spite me by sleeping next to an active microwave for several years, there's no way to get rid of it. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of the greatest fraud in scientific history. This week's episode, The Earliest Englishman, Part 1. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of characters to acquaint ourselves with in this story, but let's begin with the two presenters at that 1912 meeting of the Geological Society, Arthur Smith Woodward and Charles Dawson. Woodward was the professional and Dawson the amateur, but neither of those descriptions adequately capture who they were. Arthur Smith Woodward, for starters, wasn't just a scientist. He was one of the most preeminent paleontologists in the world. He, along with Arthur Keith and Grafton Elliot Smith, represented a sort of British triumvirate, the lords of British biological science in the early 20th century. Woodward had become a staff member at the Natural History Museum's geology department when he was just 22 years old and steadily climbed the ranks until, in 1901, he became the head of that department. He was president of the Geological Society, secretary of the Paleoontographical Society, a fellow of the Royal Society, and had won just about every scientific award in the world. Most of those honors were earned on the back of his research into fossilized fish, and Woodward was just about the most esteemed ichthyologist since Samuel Latham Mitchell, the haughty New Yorker who featured in our episode Our Whale's Fish. But the attention, fame, and esteem Smith Woodward would earn in 1812 far outstripped anything he'd ever seen before in his life. It would eventually get him a royal medal and a knighthood. And it was all thanks to Charles Dawson. Charles Dawson was a lawyer by trade, 
But while he had no formal training or position in science, it would hardly suffice to call him a hobbyist. He'd started collecting fossils near his family home in Hastings long before he began practicing law, and by the time of the unveiling at the Geological Society, he was informally known as the Wizard of Sussex. Along with another lawyer-cum-fossil hunter, the retired Samuel Husbands Beckles, he discovered a number of important specimens, including three new species of dinosaurs, one of which was named in his honor, Iguanodon dawsoni. He'd discovered a late Roman statue made of cast iron, a Stone Age axe, the timbers of an ancient rowboat, and the so-called Brighton Toad in the Hole, a mummified toad found encased within a round flint nodule. He'd written a comprehensive history of Hastings Castle, including his personal research into secret passages and a dungeon beneath it, and so much more. For all of this, he too earned a number of honors. He was named a Fellow of the Geological Society and the Society of Antiquaries, an honorary collector by the Natural History Museum, and he was a member of the Hastings and St. Leonard's Museum Association, which he co-founded. Dawson had met Woodward sometime in the early 1890s when Dawson was volunteering to sort and catalog the collection of his recently deceased mentor, Samuel Beckles, which he had bequeathed to the Natural History Museum, where Smith Woodward was then an assistant curator. The next year, Dawson brought Woodward a fossilized tooth, which the scientist identified as being from a small, rodent-like animal, a member of the order Multituberculata, it was the oldest evidence of mammals being present in Europe, and a strong case for a missing link between reptiles and mammals. This was an auspicious beginning to a long professional association and friendship, which would culminate in 1912. The letter that had kicked off the greatest discovery in paleoanthropological history was strangely understated. In the midst of a long correspondence between the two men, Dawson wrote Woodward about a series of matters. They'd recently been out looking for dinosaur bones together, and Dawson informed Woodward about his part of the bill for the diggers they'd hired. Dawson told Woodward about a new book his friend and neighbor Arthur Conan Doyle was working on, about a lost world in South America where dinosaurs and the primitive ancestors of humanity still lived undisturbed. Oh, right, I almost forgot. He also relayed to Woodward in one incomplete sentence that he had found a fossilized skullcap in a flint pit that might be the missing link. It took a couple months for Woodward to make his way down to Sussex to check on Dawson's find. Dawson explained that there was a gravel pit at Barkham Manor, near the town of Piltdown, which road workers regularly excavated for pieces they could use to mend potholes. Dawson had, a while back, told them to keep an eye out for any interesting fossil finds and alert him to them. But when one of the workers found what he thought to be a coconut, he smashed it with his hammer before another could recognize its value. What Dawson had to show Woodward were the pieces he'd been able to salvage. Although the circumstances were less than ideal, what was left was still astonishing. Dawson had managed to put together three pieces of an ancient clay-brown fossilized skull, old enough to predate any hominid ever found, not just in England or Europe, but anywhere in the world. 
And one of those pieces was a large hunk of the left side of the poor caveman's skull, which, while thicker than a contemporary human's, was nevertheless extremely familiar. The brain case, it seemed, would have been perhaps three quarters the size of a modern Homo sapien. It was a perfect candidate for the missing link. Or it would be, if Dawson and Smith Woodward could find more. Luckily, Dawson was the estate manager for Barkham Manor, and he'd already put a halt to the roadwork and secured permission for a dig. Woodward dropped everything and came out to Piltdown, and for the entire summer, June through September, he and Dawson worked, day in and day out, searching for more of the mysterious skull. They were joined by two men, an older laborer called Venus Hargraves and a young French Jesuit with a passion for archaeology named Pierre Tellard de Chardon. Oh, I just felt the ears of the few Catholic theologians listening perk up. Don't worry, we will get back to him. And Hargraves, too, because the fun part about this story is that it eventually becomes a mystery. And, like in the best mysteries, everyone's a suspect. In the first few months at the gravel pit, the team made a good amount of progress. The site was littered with small artifacts, mostly primitive flint tools and the teeth of long extinct animals, which would go a long way towards putting a date on their Piltdown man. On the first day of digging, Dawson found a chunk of the back of the skull, but it took several more weeks until they really hit pay dirt. At the very end of June, Dawson found a hunk of jaw from the right side of the face. It was broken below the mandibular notch that would connect it to the skull and terminated before the chin. But while the pieces they'd found before were exciting, the jaw was on a whole other level. If the skull pieces bore a striking resemblance to those of a human, the jaw was the spitting image of a great ape. So much so that it was only natural to wonder if it belonged to some unrelated chimp or orangutan that had somehow come to rest coincidentally alongside the owner of the skullcap. And indeed, people did wonder that, which we will get back to. But in order to believe that conjecture, you not only had to square the improbable odds of such a thing occurring, you also had to account for the teeth because there were two of them still nestled within the jaw, and they were unlike any ape teeth ever seen anywhere in the world or throughout history. They were molars, flat, and forming a sort of rolling, mashing surface that is among the more standout parts of humandom. There could now be no question what they had on their hands was the most tectonic discovery in the history of anthropology, the key to understanding our human origins. While Dawson and Smith Woodward began putting together a reconstruction of the entire skull, they also slightly opened up their circle. They'd been doing everything they could to keep the find under wraps, but now they invited a few outside eyes to give opinions, and the news quickly spread to the papers. By the time of the presentation, on December 18th, word was out, and the Geological Society was packed to bursting. In the center of the stage sat a podium with the complete skull of Piltdown Man upon it. Of course, the majority of said skull constituted an educated guess, a model of what seemed likely to be its original shape. But even if one quibbled with the specifics of the reconstruction, which they did, the real pieces were impressive. 
Dawson gave a speech detailing how he had first come upon the original skull fragments, and detailed how he, Woodward, Hargraves, and Taylard went about the excavation. Then Woodward took the spotlight to lay out the scientific theory behind the skull. The rough contours of that theory you already know, but we've got to pause a moment here to understand the state of evolutionary theory generally, and theories of human origins more specifically as they sat in 1912. For the last half of the 19th century, as we've exhaustively covered, the leading theories for evolution were various orthogenetic and Lamarckian ideas, the main thrust being that evolution was not a process of random mutations and adaptations being honed to eventual advantage through the crucible of natural selection, as Darwin envisioned. Instead, there must be some sort of force which guided evolution either towards results that were prefigured somehow or via a progressive principle that tended towards advancement. But then, the mutationists had rediscovered Mendel's laws of inheritance, and Darwinism started looking more and more unavoidable. The modern synthesis that brought natural selection and genetics in line was a slow, yet seemingly inexorable process, which began at the turn of the century but didn't fall firmly into final place until around 1930 which means that, for the course of three decades, there were a whole lot of biologists who had devoted their careers to theories that were falling apart, while others were proposing new ideas that they hoped would be proven. And Piltdown Man was like a universal adapter for all of it. It was just credible and specific enough that it couldn't be ignored, but there were enough open questions that it could be interpreted any way one pleased. On the subject of human origins specifically, however, Piltdown was less flexible. The two biggest questions in the arena were how humans had evolved and where humans had evolved. For the latter, there were essentially three camps, out of Africa, out of Asia, and out of Europe. Africa made sense as a starting point because Africa was where chimps, bonobos, and gorillas all lived. So if any of those three were our recent cousins, we probably shared a postal code at some point. The case for Asia was similar. The gibbons and orangutans hung out there, either of which could have been closer relatives to humanity depending on whom you asked. Plus, there was Java Man, the fossilized remains found by Dubois, which strengthened the Asian case. Europe was lacking in still living close relations, but by 1913, there were a bunch of fossilized hominid remains discovered there, spread out from France to Germany. Not to mention the most important piece of evidence for European human origins, the people in charge of looking into human origins were themselves European. The inquiry wasn't only tinged by racism, though. It had nationalism working with it as well. World War I was dangerously close to popping off, and anti-German sentiment across the continent meant that English scientists were looking for a way to thread the needle, putting human origins in Europe, but not in Germany. How humans had evolved was the other big question. When you got right down to it, there were three really big differences between people and the great apes. Intelligence, bipedalism, and diet. One of these changes must have dominoed into the others, it was assumed. But which? Piltdown Man, with his big human-like skull and his big ape-like jaw presented evidence for the brain firsters, the people who hypothesized that intelligence had paved the way for our other distinguishing traits. 
What the unveiling of Piltdown Man most clearly shows is how the would-be objective men of science were guided so predictably by their biases. How big a deal was this new skull, and what was the likelihood that it came from our direct missing link? You can basically figure the underlying beliefs of scientists at the time and plot their enthusiasm or skepticism directly on top of it. If someone favored the out-of-Africa hypothesis, they were less moved by Piltdown. If they believed in European origins, they were more. If they believed in orthogenesis, then they were more likely to think Piltdown was humanity's direct progenitor than if they were Darwinians. Brain-first origins? Piltdown good. Diet-first origins? Piltdown bad. And the single most important question for predicting a scientist's position, was he British? Take Arthur Smith Woodward, for example. He'd never given much thought to where or how humans had evolved. His focus was on fish, after all. But he was English, and he was partial to orthogenesis, too. Not to mention, of course, that he was the professional closest to the discovery. So naturally, he thought Piltdown Man was a slam dunk. The second of the great British life scientists of the time, Grafton Elliot Smith, was nearly as sure. Smith wasn't just British and a supporter of European origins, he was also the most vocal proponent of the brain-first camp, so he was sold on Piltdown immediately. That left the third great English scientist, Arthur Keith. Of the three, Keith was the most strident believer in European origins, but he strongly disagreed with the brain-first hypothesis. So while he found the Piltdown specimen to be persuasive, he had his reservations about how it had been reconstructed. The full head Smith, Woodward, and Dawson had put together emphasized how ape-like the jaw was. The back teeth found in the jaw fragment were flat molars, yes, but the two discoverers presumed that the canines would be large, sharp, and protruding, like a chimp's. Everything else about the remains seemed copacetic to the scientific establishment, but the canines, the canines were a reach. We humans use our molars to grind things, and we mainly accomplish that through back-and-forth action. But big, overhanging canines would inhibit that motion, so how could a mouth have both? The Scottish anatomist David Waterston thought this paradox irreconcilable. He argued that the jaw must have belonged to a different animal than the skull. But Arthur Keith offered a bridge. The jaw might be authentic, it was merely the reconstruction that had taken things a step too far. The missing pieces imagined by the discoverers must have been more human-like than they thought. Keith also examined the skull and decided that the brain case wasn't as large as Smith Woodward supposed. Both of these conclusions supported that Piltdown was important, but threw into question whether it was, in fact, THE missing link but they would be settled soon enough. Once winter cleared, Woodward, Dawson, Hargraves, and Taylard went back to the pit, digging and sifting, along with their mascot, a barnyard goose named Chipper, who followed the four around endlessly. Oh, you gotta love Chipper. For most of the spring and summer, pickings were slims, but on the morning of August 30th, Taylard made the most serendipitous find of the whole saga a lower canine tooth. The same chocolate brown as the other finds, which slotted firmly into the reconstructed head of Piltdown Man. It matched the reconstruction Dawson and Woodward had imagined perfectly. 
This was befuddling for Arthur Keith. He'd thought the canine had to be smaller, and by extension, he'd thought that the brain and jaw must have evolved more in tandem. But Tellard had pulled from the pit proof positive that Dawson and Woodward's conjecture was correct. On his last day at the site, before returning to France to join the war effort, Tellard had allayed all doubts. Er, most of them. There were a few things about the tooth that seemed odd. Its color was actually slightly darker than the rest of the fossils, and it was more worn than the other two teeth, as if it had come from an older individual. But boy, it was hard to get around the basic facts. Here was the tooth, just as predicted, found in the same pit, right where it should have been. The only other possibility was the one that Waterston had raised. Was it possible that somehow... An ape jaw had ended up in the same location as the hominid? At the same depth? And with the same basic coloration? It seemed far-fetched, but it couldn't, strictly speaking, be ruled out. The hinge of the jaw was still missing, so it couldn't be definitively said that the two things were joined, or how. Most were convinced that all the pieces fit, and Piltdown Man was more or less accepted as a matter of fact. Sure, you could quibble about whether it was, as the newspapers and many scientists said, the missing link, but even if it wasn't, it was certainly the most important piece of evidence to our understanding of human origins. People evolved brain first. And they evolved in England. Still, the niggling doubt remained... An American anthropologist at the Smithsonian named Garrett Miller took Waterston's initial criticisms and ran with them in 1915. Yeah, the coincidence was extraordinary, but Miller couldn't see how the jaw and the skull could possibly go together. Unless some further evidence revealed itself, he had to assume the find was a mistake. And then the evidence promptly showed up. Yeah, I know it's suspicious. You know it's suspicious. We all know it's suspicious. But at the time, barely anyone registered something weird going on here. On January 9th, 1915, Dawson wrote Woodward to tell him he'd made another find. He'd stumbled upon another gravel pit nearby to the Barkham Manor site and found a second skull. Not much of one, but enough to confirm every detail of the first, including the jaw and the tooth. Miller, Waterston, and Keith had all entertained the possibility that an ape jaw got mixed in with a skull at the first sight, but the chances that the same thing could have happened to a second specimen at a separate site two miles away were astronomical. Piltdown Man was the real deal. Now, if you'd have been extremely observant, you might have noticed that the two skulls weren't just similar, but virtually identical in every respect. And you might have noticed, too, that of the original pieces in each one, there was no overlap whatsoever. Which is to say, one could have collected all the pieces and assembled a single skull without any extra pieces left over. But there was no reason to consider that, since the pieces had been pulled from two distinct and distant plots. Right? Right! So, Piltdown Man was real, the missing link, and everybody went along their merry ways. I mean, not Charles Dawson. He died of pernicious anemia the next year, on August 10th, 1916. But everybody else ended up pretty merry. People built their entire careers around Piltdown for decades to come, especially Arthur Smith Woodward and Arthur Keith. 
Piltdown Man became a shorthand term for human ancestry, and the vision of that ancestry as a big-jawed, sloping caveman inspired depictions from textbooks to film to cartoons. And when archaeological evidence against the conclusions enforced by Piltdown showed up, they were greeted with enhanced skepticism. The Tong Child, a juvenile Australopithecus discovered by Raymond Dart in South Africa in 1924, was roundly dismissed, particularly by English scientists, because its jaw was too modern and its brain case too small. Not to mention, it had been found in South Africa, when everyone knew the cradle of humanity was Europe. But over the years, more fossils like Tong Child were dug up, primarily in Africa and Asia too. All of them showed the same basic features, less pronounced jaws, shorter teeth, and smaller brains. Piltdown Man began to look less and less like the rule and more like an exception, a big exception that was hard to fit into the emerging schema. The questions around the earliest Englishman, as Woodward had coined it, were piling up. And after his death came the answer. Piltdown Man was a fraud. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. handful of people over the decades had allowed themselves to quietly wonder about the provenance of Piltdown Man. But it took until 1953 for someone to look it in the face. Joseph Weiner, a young professor of anthropology at Oxford, had been visiting the Natural History Museum for a conference on human origins when the conversation had turned to the earliest Englishman. Wiener had long been interested in Piltdown and a bit skeptical, too. He didn't understand how the jaw could have fit with the first skull, but he also couldn't think of an alternative, especially since there was that second skull, now known as Piltdown 2, which Dawson had discovered in Sheffield Park. Where in Sheffield Park did he find it? And when? Those were the questions that set everything off. He asked them of Kenneth Oakley, a fellow anthropologist and staff member at the museum. A few years earlier, Oakley had devised a fluorine dating test that was employed to confirm whether the skull and jaw were the same age. To the relief of Piltdown supporters, the test confirmed that yes, all the fossils dated from the same relative period. 
to their distress, however, that period was way later than previously supposed. Dawson and Woodward had argued that the remains traced back half a million years, based upon where they were found and what they were found with, but the fluorine test put Piltdown Man as no more than 50,000 years old. It was a serious blow to the value of the fossils, and made their place in human evolutionary history even more confusing. Homo sapiens were definitely already around by 48,000 BC, so who was Piltdown? An evolutionary throwback? The last hermit of an otherwise extinct species that had survived in secret until the late Upper Pleistocene? It was totally perplexing. Until Wiener asked Oakley about Piltdown 2. The truth of the matter was that the museum hadn't a clue where the second skull had been found. Or when. No one did. Outside of a single vague postcard Dawson had sent Woodward, there was no written record of its discovery. Dawson hadn't put it in his notes, and Woodward, if he knew more than the postcard, had neglected to write it up in his books. Driving home that night, Wiener allowed himself to consider the most succinct explanation for the thickening paradoxes surrounding Piltdown Man. None of it made sense, no matter how you twisted things. Unless somebody had faked it. The next morning, he went straight to his lab at Oxford, where there were a set of plaster casts of the Piltdown specimens. He pored over them for hours. The whole thing, he realized, came down to the teeth. There was nothing the least bit ape-like about the skull bits, and nothing the least bit human-like about the jaw bits. Only the three teeth, the two flat molars, and the one sharp, oversized canine bridged the gap and made the case for a connection. Examining those teeth from the point of view of trying to expose them instead of explain them was immediately telling. They didn't line up. The molars didn't form a continuous surface the way grinding molars typically do, and the edges of the teeth were suspiciously sharp when the act of chewing ought to have rounded them off. When Wiener went back to Oakley's fluorine dating report, he also noticed that apparently the dark brown coloration present on all the fossils was shallow. When Oakley took samples from the teeth, the enamel beneath the surface had been fresh and white. Wiener was close. He had the idea. But could it really be that simple? He retrieved a tooth from the Oxford lab, a molar from a modern chimpanzee. Then he grabbed a metal file and began grinding it down. Once he'd done that, he pulled out a vial of potassium permanganate, a purplish oxidizing agent used to treat fungal infections and eczemas. It also has a habit of staining things brown. The whole operation was completed in no time. Wiener had, with very little effort, transformed a fresh, sharp ape molar into a fossil-looking, human-esque molar. It was the spitting image of Piltdown. Wiener was stunned. It couldn't be. The crown jewel of British paleoanthropology, the missing link itself, a rudimentary forgery? He called over his boss, Wilfred LaGrosse Clark, to give a second opinion. Clark recognized the item immediately and understood just as quickly the ramifications. So, Clark rang the National Museum to tell Kenneth Oakley that they had reason to believe Piltdown Man was a hoax. Oakley told him he'd call them back and hung up. 
An hour later, Clark's phone rang. Oakley had put the three Piltdown teeth under his strongest microscope. And what did he see? They had been filed. When they subjected the teeth to more rigorous testing, the anomalies piled up. The wear patterns on all three teeth defied what would be expected from regular wear and tear in almost every respect, particularly the large, sharpened canine, which was replete with abrasions that made no sense for how it could have been used. The coloration was definitely the result of some sort of stain. The whole specimen had been treated with some kind of hardening agent. There was, as already alluded to, every reason to think that the two skulls were in fact one. Most damning was the dating. A second round of fluorine testing was run, along with a nitrogen screening. Forget 50,000, the more thorough dating concluded the samples were less than 700 years old. The news broke on the 20th of November, my birthday, 1953. Britain's August Natural History Museum is all a dither over a scandal concerning the Piltdown Man. One of the most famous fossil skulls in the world is declared to be in part a hoax. I love this newsreel. It was presumed to date back half a million years. Today comes the shocking news that this is skullduggery. But the headlines were more brutal, with the London Star putting things most bluntly. The biggest scientific hoax of the century. Science, particularly English science, had been fooled and persisted in being fooled for 40 years. The many careers made by Piltdown Man were just as rapidly unmade. Creationists crawled out of the woodwork to say that the link again was missing and that evolution was no longer a tenable theory. In truth, of course, it was just the opposite. Piltdown had been an outlier, a confounder, and its exposure meant that paleoanthropology now made more sense, not less. But, you know, creationists. Still, the bare facts of the matter, that so many top men had been so taken in for so long, wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement of the scientific establishment. If this, the most prominent and important archaeological find of all history, could be a hornswoggle, then why should the public believe anything else these scientists had to say? The next ripple in the Piltdown affair was the personal. Most of the people who had been around for the initial discovery and examination of the specimens were dead. Many of them, like Charles Dawson, long dead. Grafton Elliott Smith had passed on New Year's Day, 1937. Arthur Smith Woodward had followed him in 1944. Of the three preeminent scientists, only Arthur Keith still lived, and he was deep into retirement. Oakley, Weiner, and Clark went to visit him the day the paper came out, hoping to deliver the news personally, but by the time they arrived, Keith had already read it in the papers. He was a frail shambles. In subsequent months, the evidence against Piltdown only grew more overwhelming. Everything found at the Barkham Manor pit, not just the skull fragments, teeth, and jaw, but even the animal bones and flints, had been manufactured. And ingeniously so. Sure, the process of creating the fake fossils might not have been the most technically complicated, but every last piece had been carefully and cunningly chosen to trick any observer. The animals in the pit all pointed to the same time period. Each piece of skull represented the exact area needed to bolster the theory, and the absences were even more clever. 
particularly the hinge of the jaw, which would have been impossible to fake and would have immediately shown that it didn't belong to the same skull. Because the jaw was an orangutan's. This was, as Oakley, Wiener, and Clark put it in their report, a most elaborate and carefully prepared hoax, so elaborately skillful, and the perpetrator of the hoax appears to have been so entirely unscrupulous and inexplicable as to find no parallel in the history of paleoanthropological discovery. Which leads to the biggest question. Who was said perpetrator? Piltdown Man isn't just the greatest scientific hoax of the 20th century, it's also, according to many, the greatest scientific mystery of the 20th century. And we're going to solve it next time on The Earliest Englishman Part 2. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Epidemic Sound, and Lee Rosevere. Special thanks go out to all the sponsors who make this show possible, especially Tony the Amazing Criswell, Taja Cantlin, Stefar Smith, Alexander Young, Barry Warden, Chris Hammer, Berluse, Fritz Casper, and Vultaros. If you'd like to join them, you know the drill. Head on over to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. For your troubles, you will receive early and ad-free access to new episodes, along with monthly bonus content and my eternal gratitude. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Owens Archaeopteryx paid a visit in 1997 that I got to meet at the Field Museum, this has been The Constant. The Constant.